Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have my good friend, Carlos Garrido. We spend many hours drinking together and arguing the toss about what works and what doesn't. He is co-founder and co-CEO of Sandler in Miami with his brother, Antonio. He's the brighter of the two brothers and certainly the nicer one. Carlos, can you give a quick introduction to who you are, two minutes on what your journey's been to get to where you are today? Yes, yeah, sure. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me on, Marcus. I'm Carlos Garrido in Miami, and many of your listeners may be surprised at my accent for being from Miami and uh, being called Carlos Garrido, but you'll, you'll notice a British accent. And there's a story there, which is going to take uh, way too much time. I had a career in sales and investment banking and a career in um, business development. And then my brother, Antonio, who at the time was a client of Sandler, uh, a guy we both know very well, Tom Neeson, Tom Neeson's client, came up with this uh, harebrained idea that we were going to open a Sandler office in Miami. And the rest is history. We, uh, I, I thought it was a crazy idea. I told him I wasn't going to do it. He asked me to help him write his business plan, which meant that I had to go and experience some Sandler to write his business plan for him. He needed the business plan for immigration purposes for, for him to come, out to come out to join me in America. So I experienced some Sandler and just simply fell in love with it. And so... The rest is history. We, we, we established the business about seven years ago, and we have been embraced and become part of the family, the Sandler family. We were embraced very quickly. It is the nature of our network to be uh, uh, welcome all sorts. We're very Catholic about the way we, uh, <laughs> the way we uh, uh, embrace people from all backgrounds. And uh, we've, had a, we've built a marvelous, wonderful business in Miami teaching and training and coaching leaders and sales managers and salespeople how to be bigger and better and badder and you know a few protestants from belfast and cambridge probably wouldn't agree with that but anyway let's move on yeah <laughs> so carlos we're, we're, we're a broad church i think that's my a, main a message church. we're a broad <laughs> church yeah so we're in the midst of this corona uh, lockdown what are the foremost common questions you're being asked by people about how to make it through so I've got, well, I've got clients and I've got prospects and I've got just those sort of centers of influence that we, uh, that we, you know, we interact every day in the marketplace and clients, but the last different questions, I'm sure, I'm sure the same happens to you, Marcus. Yeah. Clients come and they're looking for ways to respond. So I found there's a real correlation. Our client, especially if they've been clients for some time, I mean, I think the uh, our average in our office, I think, is something like three to four years of working with someone. So if we've been working with someone for a long time, they kind of get it. And they are they're looking for ways to lead and looking for ways to respond. So they're looking for creativity and they are looking for um, ideas. And I think, actually, they make a little mistake in doing that. I'll tell you why in a moment. Then I've got prospects and other people that, that aren't kind of close to our Sandler philosophies, they're looking for ways to react. And I think there's a big difference. I think those that are reacting, they're in protection mode. Those responding are in growth mode. Never step out of growth mode. 
and of course I am overgeneralizing in some. There are there are those industries where basically the industry is mothballed. You know, if you're selling uh, you know hotel rooms to conferences right now, well then you know let, let's not have some kind of um, you know rose tinted spectacles thinking you're going to be closing a lot of business. You're not, but you know what you can do. You can be building relationships. And you can do it in the confidence that your competitors are they're resting at the moment, right? They're watching Netflix. They are, they're like turtles. They've attracted into their shells. What a great opportunities to actually go out and, um, and build a book of business. So there's still ways to respond, always ways to respond. But we're playing a new game. I think it would be crazy to not recognize that we're playing a new game now. I'm always, I'm a big fan of Gary Kasparov. And I think that this is Gary Kasparov's quote. It might not be, it's certainly a chess, like a chess grandmaster's quote. He he said, you play the game, at the beginning of the game, the, the start, you play like a book. The middle game, you play like a magician. And the end game, you play like a machine. Right. That's kind of how I that's kind of how we approach all assignments. I'm sure you're the same. We start working with the company. Well, you play the beginning like a book. We need the foundational pieces in place. Yeah. We need people to know how to speak to, to customers. We need scripts in place. We need sales management processes in place. We need um coaching systems in place. Without the basics, if you're playing chess, if you're if you're not controlling the center of the board in chess then, you know, you've got real problems. You're never going to be able to play that game. When we have a client assignment, if you've not got the basics, if you're not controlling the center of the board, you've got a problem. And the book tells you the 50 different ways you control the center of the board. So you play the beginning like a book. Then you play the middle game like a magician. This is when we establish strategies. This is when we use role plays to to move people from um, the core tools into real mastery. That's so you play the middle game like a magician. And then once we've done our work and we've got everybody like magician quality with core principles in place, well, then you play the end game like a machine and you can scale it and do it again and again and again. So we cr- this is a long answer to a short question. With COVID, with this new game that we're playing, you've got to play the beginning like a book. All right, we need some basics in place. What's the behavioral model? What are the scripts? Where are the opportunities? What's my new sales management process for leading virtual teams? What's my coaching process now? Let's control the center of the board. Let's play the beginning like a book. And then we can do that quickly. And then we move into, we play the middle game like a magician. Because... I find that a lot of people are coming to me saying, what are the magician moves? Give me the creativity, Carlos. You're not ready for it. You can't, you're just going to be, if you get creative at the beginning of a chess game, you're screwed, man. The irony here is what they should be doing now is what they should have been doing in good times. The clients that I've been working with for a while, they haven't missed a beat. I was on a call this morning with former clients and One of them told me that last year she did 120% of target and she did 200% of her new business target, just doing the basic core principles. 
and doing those behaviors consistently. And it was just such a joy to hear because her pipeline has moved two weeks. That's it. And it's because she's got those strong foundations. And I'm seeing this all the time where people haven't got the basics in place. So they don't have a structure to their prospecting. They don't have a a cadence to their coaching. And so when this hit, all of a sudden, because their pipeline was weak and they didn't have that engagement with their salespeople, then it all turned to shit. That actually was on them. It's the stuff that they should have been doing in the good times that would have helped them through these bad times. So I'm curious, again, if we use the chess analogy, a lot of chess is playing several moves ahead. The move that you're playing now is a function of that plan and having rehearsed and practiced and prepared so that you are six or 12 moves ahead. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. You're thinking three to six moves ahead, right? Unless you're a grandmaster. Absolutely. And again, my question is this. In terms of advising your clients, in terms of sticking to the basics, sticking to the core principles, but having that medium to long-term view, so they're not just reacting to the immediate crisis, but they're concerned about the important but not urgent stuff. What are you hearing from them in terms of the questions that they're asking you and the advice that you're giving them? I'm getting questions that that highlight the principal issue, and, and there are a few principal issues that underpin all of this. You touched on the main one, which is you said you've noticed people that are suffering now because their pipeline was for shit, right? Weak, weak pipeline. I believe the core sales tool and the core sales management tool is pipeline. Pipeline is the alpha and the omega. It is everything in sales. In nearly every circumstance, there are some sales roles which are less pipeline focused, but 95% of sales roles would, would uh, or salespeople would, and sales functions would incre- increase productivity and effectiveness in almost a boundless way if they could adopt a robust pipeline attitude system. And so what I've noticed is a lot of people bringing these crises like, you know, my pipeline's turned to crap. You know what? The pipeline was crap before. But they just weren't prepared to to see it. A crisis doesn't create weakness. A crisis exposes weakness. I have a client who who was just so uber-focused on one industry that when that industry fell away, she's now saying to me, my business has, has, has just turned into garbage. I'm like, you know what? Maybe it was to begin with. And that isn't, I'm not, this isn't a judgment. There's no judgment there. Times were so good that we didn't notice it, right? Times were so good. How many sales teams do you see, Marcus, or owners that think they've got, because sales are good, they think they've got good salespeople? You know, post hoc, ergo proctor hoc. Because one thing follows another, it doesn't necessarily mean it's caused by another. There's a bit of Latin for you. How often do you get Latin, Marcus, on this podcast? Post hoc, ergo proctor Very rarely. I'm thinking you should run for PM. (laughs) <laughs> I know, you see, I'm, I've been out of the UK. Does he use a lot of Latin? Um, oh, he does. Ali Ajaxa Est and all that. Oh, I've, I've been out. I'm now in America. I've been here 10 years, so I'm, I'm out of the loop. 
But yeah, so because one thing follows another, it is caused by another. Well, absolutely it isn't. You know, people think, hey, I've got, I'm getting great, great sales results. I must have great salespeople. Actually, no, you've been in a good market and you've got order takers who've had a lot of orders come in their way. That you're lucky, you know, and Napoleon said, I like lucky generals. I get that. You know, we'll all take a bit of luck. But there are times that luck ain't enough. Yeah. And when you're in a crisis, or I'm not even prepared to call it. It is, a, of course, it's a health crisis. Of course, it's a, it's a pandemic. But, in, but there are those limited circle of leaders who recognize the health crisis and they recognize that the economy has had how many trillions ripped out of the heart of it. I get it. Of course it has. But if you think for a moment that there's now a paucity of opportunity, well, now I'm prepared to have an argument with you. Because there is no paucity of opportunity. If anything, I would say that this is making you go out on a limb and ain't that where the sweetest fruit is, right? Out on the limb is where the fruit is. So what are the strategies? What are the basics we need to put in place to respond in this new environment? I'm not a commercial environment. If we're talking about the health environment, the social environment, I'm prepared to concede that this times aren't good. But if we're talking about a commercial economic environment, in the microcosm of one business, in the mi- yeah, microeconomically problems, microeconomically, I think this is nothing but opportunity. And so put the basics in place. This is the best time for professional sellers that we will ever experience in our entire lifetime. The pandemic, while absolutely is a tragedy on a health and social level, is a gift that you should not be looking up the nose of. We will not get another pandemic, hopefully, for at least another 100 years. That typically is the cycle. A pandemic effectively means that all of our competitors are buying into the message that this is a recession. I've had so many sales trainers ask me for help in the last three weeks. You would not believe they've come out the woodwork and they're telling me that their pipeline has fallen off the cliff that there is no business, to which I'm not being cruel, but my business has never been so good. Now, I'm not gloating over it. I'm grateful for it. But the reality is that it's pouring with rain. There is a thunderstorm outside. We are selling umbrellas, galoshes, Wellington boots, you know, oil skins. Um, and, And the challenge here is that most or many of us, as long as we're not in hospitality or the airline business, or events, many of us actually can really add value. And I think we do our customers and our prospects a monumental disservice, a sinful disservice, if we are not reaching out to them and engaging them in conversation about not only how can we help them make it through now, but how can we help them come out of this stronger? So tell me this, What are the questions that people should be asking you, but they just aren't? What they're not asking me is is how to do things differently. They're asking me what they should do that's different, not how they should do things differently. So I heard a, a a smart guy speaking. He said, the corona event doesn't change what you do, change how you do it. 
and it certainly doesn't change who you are. So why do I do uh, five reach outs every day? I did it before the coronavirus. I'm doing it after the corona. Uh, Now that we're in the corona times, I do the same things. The message is slightly different, but I do those things. Why? I do it because I prospect. It's who I am. A prospector is who I am. I grow my business because I am a leader. The the crisis hasn't changed that. It changes the manner in which I do things. So, for example, in the past, uh, I do five daily calls a day. You know, I heard um, it was in, and this is an old one for you, for for some of the masters on the, uh, some of the old masters, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Ever read it? Cranfield, Chicken Soup for the Soul. I mean, it's light and it's easy to read. It's kind of like a, it's a bathroom read, right? So, you know, really easy, very digestible. And I remember from that, there's a line that says, if you take five good cuts to a tree, five good cuts to a tree every day, you can fell the biggest tree, right? Now, let's break that out. Five, for five read multiple. Good cuts isn't a tap. It's a meaningful event. So multiple, meaningful activity daily. Daily means consistent, right? So multiple, meaningful, consistent. You do that and you can fell the biggest tree. You do that and you'll climb Everest. You do that and you will achieve anything. Multiple, meaningful activities done consistently. So before the corona as, as locked me in my house. Before that happened, I would make five reach outs every day to people, a conversation. It was in my business. It was in my model. It was in my cookbook. Corona comes, the things I say are different, but it hasn't changed multiple, meaningful activities done in a consistent way that you can achieve anything you know, what's the number? I want to be a billionaire. How do I become a billionaire, Carlos? It's the same answer. Multiple, meaningful activities done on a consistent basis. There is no other recipe. What do I do? In the past, what I used to do is I used to call somebody and say, hey, hey, Marcus, you know, how's business? Chit chat. Marcus, I'm really committed to my business goals this year. You're the kind of guy who can introduce me to the right kind of people my ideal clients. Marcus, who in your world, who in your world would value a conversation with me? The same conversation happens in the corona, slightly changed. Hey, Marcus, you know, we've got a lot of value to bring right now. As you know, we've worked with you or, you know, you've known us for a long time. Maybe we've worked with you before. Who in your world do you care about that's that's in pain, that's got struggles? Who do you know that we can help? Who are you got heartburn? You're worried they're not going to see it through. Maybe an important customer, maybe an important supplier. I got that from you, by the way, Mark. <laughs> um, and so, you know, maybe an important, who have you got heartburn? So I'm yeah. talking about things in a different way. The how is different. So, so that's the question they should be asking me. They should be saying to me, Carlos, I do the right things. Show me how to do it in, the, in this new world. Get creative. So this brings me to the next question. What should they be asking you about referrals, but they aren't? Oh, well, most of the people I know should be asking me the, the right question for nearly everybody I know 
So what they should be asking me is, Carlos, why am I so shit at referrals? That's what they should be asking me. They should be saying to me, you know what, Carlos? You've told me multiple times what to say. Why can't I say it like you say it? Where's the conviction gone? That's what they should be saying to me. That's not what they're asking me. What they are asking me is, how should I ask for referrals, Carlos? Again, I don't know why I'm not asking for referrals. Why do you think that? That's what they should be. But what they should be, that's what they are asking me. So weak. What they should be asking me is, Carlos, help me understand my barriers because I am not utilizing referrals in the way that you're promising me should deliver so much value. I think it was Sandler that said to Ganesh, once you've got 20 clients, if you're not getting a full book of business from referrals alone, then you ain't doing them right. And you know where it happens? It happens here. It doesn't happen here. It happens here. Because it'll happen here once it happens here. Sorry for the the audio. Um, What Carlos is saying is it happens in the prison of the six inches between your ears, not in your mouth. And the gap between your brain knowing what you should do and your mouth appears to be rather large in many cases. And it's a chasm many can't cross because at a gut level, there's often a question about whether they should be asking for referrals, whether they have a right to be asking for referrals. And they feel uncomfortable about asking for referrals. Why on earth would people be uncomfortable about asking for referrals if they are doing a good job for their clients? I'm going to give you a litany that I notice. I'm going to give you a list. I'm not going to say yeah. there's one magic because it's not one there magic either. bullet. There's very rarely a magic bullet in sales, right? Very, very rarely. And so here are some of the things that I see. Number one. The main one, I think, is people manifest it in their mind, an actual, a meaningful ask for referrals. Because anyone can ask for a referral, hey? Oh, hey, is there any, have you got any referrals for me? That's, that's not real. That's yeah. not even nearly real. So when you say it in a meaningful way, meaning that you mean it, you're expecting a referral. When you say it in a meaningful way, people confuse it with desperation. and. I think there's nothing further from desperation than meaningfully pursuing a business development goal because you've got a high aspiration and ambition. I think one of the things we do in Sandler is we light a fire under ambition and drive that fuels a furious work ethic. Let me say it again. We light a fire under ambition and drive that fuels a furious work ethic. So once I'm comfortable with my furious work ethic and connected it squarely to to ambition, to my ambition and importantly, my drive, well, now I'm not uncomfortable pursuing that ambition and drive. Pursuing is the wrong word. You know, giving it real momentum. I do it with a habit. If it isn't a habit, then, then it isn't momentum. I do it with a habit of referrals, an expectation of two things. One, that I, that an expectation that re- if referrals are all around me and come to me. And, and expectation number two is that the world isn't so generous that they're going to come to me without, me without me doing something. 
without me acting on it, right? The world isn't so beautifully set up in the, you know, I haven't got the vanity that thinks the world circulates around me. I need to be cognizant of the people I'm interacting with. I'm reminded of Kipling's If. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowances for their doubting too. If I can be expecting that the world is surrounding me with referral opportunities, but make allowances for the fact that they're not going to come my way without some activity on my part, because I have to light a fire under my own, at times, ambition and drive that in a way that fuels a furious work ethic, consistently meaningful activity multiple times. So what you, I mean, that's only one answer to what's in our way. People think it's a move of desperation. It's absolutely not. It's a move of conviction when it happens in my mind. And when I work with clients long enough and do enough coaching with them, it becomes a move of conviction in their mind. What is conviction? Conviction is competency meets confidence, right? Once we've got the confidence and competency together, now we've got conviction. If you've got no competence, and that's why, going back to what we were talking about, Play the beginning of the game like a book. We need the basics in place. We need competency in place first. One of the rules that we teach is that behavior drives attitude. And one of the things that we see all the time is that people are waiting for their attitude to be right. What advice would you give to managers and leaders in order to focus their people's attention on the behavior instead of worrying about their attitude? So I'm going to be a, a little bit of a sandler. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to risk it all. And I know it is a core sandler principle that behavior uh, drives attitude. I get it. But I'm going to go out on the limb. That's the beginning of the game. That's the book. Behavior drives attitude until attitude drives behavior. My attitude drives my behavior, but it was never going to do it all on its own. It's like the belief wheel. Where do you attack the belief wheel? You attack the belief wheel in the action step, and you attack attitude through behavior. So this is, this is kind of counter. I'm going to say something that's Sandler heresy, right? I believe attitude does drive behavior, but that's the positive attitude and will drive positive behavior. And the best thing managers can do is create an environment of positive attitude. But we have to get there through an environment of accountability. So you get to the attitude through the behavior. And then it's like the flywheel. You know Bill Bartlett's flywheel? Once it's turning, it's going faster and faster and faster. Can you explain explain it to the audience because they won't be exposed to it? Bill Bartlett, by the way, is a colleague of Marcus and I, and he's just sort of, he's one of those individuals that shines, right? I mean, he's like, and there are those people that shine with a bright light that repel others, but Bill's got a warmth about him that's just, uh, it draws you in. So Bill's one of our colleagues. Bill talks about the flywheel. So anybody, you know, you know what? When I use this analogy, Marcus, have you started to feel a bit too old for this game? Because some of our references, the millennials look at us like a flywheel. It's a flywheel again. And it's, like, it's, it's an industrial revolution cultural touch point, which is a flywheel used to be in those old northern cotton mills where um, 
where it was a big heavy wheel, it would turn and the momentum of its turning would drive the machinery. And once you've got the flywheel turning, you only need a little effort to create a great force because the flywheel's already got momentum. And we see this, or I certainly see this, I'm sure you do, Marcus, as well. We see this with salespeople. The first pull on the flywheel is such a huge effort, and it doesn't really create a lot of result. It's the second pull on the flywheel that gets it moving a bit faster, and the third and the fourth. And by the time you've done it for 50 days, that flywheel is humming and delivering an extraordinary force. And so uh, Zig Ziglar has his own way of doing it, though the Zig one is the, uh, is the pump, right? Priming the pump. So the Zig Ziglar analogy is one of those old-fashioned pumps. In fact, I think Zig Ziglar's logo is the pump. I don't know why. That's a, that's a memory of mine. It might be. Is the pump an old-fashioned water pump that you have yeah. to pump and you're working it really hard and it's drawing the water from the water table below it up 30, 40 feet, and there's no water coming out of it, and you're working like mad, and no water's coming out of it. And then a few drips come out of it, and a dribble, and eventually, if you keep, then it gets easy, because you've got all that water tension. I mean, the physics are beautiful. The way that water, you know, the, the kind of the, um, the water pressure and the tension creates a, a fountain of water that's then easy to pump. When we're working with salespeople, what can happen is we say, okay, go out and make these calls, ask for these referrals. And they do it two or three times, no result. It's like, it's like me going to the gym. I go to the gym, <laughs> I do half an hour on the treadmill, and I'm sweating and uncomfortable. And on the way out, I stand on the scales, and I think, well, that didn't bloody work, did it? And then never go back. Of course it didn't work. The first half hour on a treadmill doesn't work. It can't work. It can't work. But equally, half an hour on a treadmill every day for a year can't not work. It's like beyond biology that that can't not work. Well, it The depends. same thing happens when we make... It depends on your diet. Make, it depends what, sorry? On your diet. Well, if you don't change your diet at all and just do that, it can't not work. Now, neither of it, it can't not work because the calorific consumption of it and the way it changes in metabolism. Granted, if we want it to work really well, Marcus, you or I, we have to change the inputs. Of course we do. But it's going to have an impact. And if I make multiple meaningful business development activities daily, consistently, that flywheel starts to turn. That's the momentum in the flywheel, and it turns. And eventually, the value that comes out of that pump, to mix our metaphors, the value that comes out of that pump is extraordinary. Have you ever read How to Be Miserable by Randy Patterson? No, I haven't. It's a fabulous book, and it uh, explains or explores how we catastrophize and we create the environment for us to be negatively impacted by our environment and how we create the conditions to create limiting beliefs and behaviors. And what, what I'm seeing a lot of is that people are saying, well, I can't push the pump. I can't spin the flywheel because, and they're always able to find a reason not to. Those, you know, the excuse factory. Now, what I'm, re again, really curious about 
Is. Well, just before you before you move on from the excuse factor, because I think there's a huge COVID virus yep. lesson in the excuse factory. Yep. Which is your competitors are all busy in their excuse factory right now. There has never been a better time to steal a march on your competition than right now when your competitors are victim mentality excuse factories never been a better time absolutely and again what we need to understand is recession depression is to a large extent a collective mental condition the reality is something like five trillion dollars went through the global economy yesterday Mm -hmm. there are people out there saying no one's buying what they're doing is that what they're really saying is no one's buying from me because i am not out there I'm not putting myself at risk of finding and speaking to prospects. I'm not putting myself at risk of making a living. What I'm doing is I'm sitting here licking my wounds, probably supping black coffee because I can't get milk from the supermarket, and I'm complaining rather than making a conscious decision and a rational response to the situation. Jim Ron says, don't, I love Jim Ron. I love Jim Ron. He says, Don't wish it were easier. Wish you were better. Don't wish for less challenge. Wish for more skills. I mean, that's exactly right. If it was nobody cheers, if you're on a football pitch and you're warming up and you uh, shoot at the goal and it goes in, nobody cheers if the opposition ain't on the pitch yet, right? If it's easy, there's no value in it. You know, the world ain't that kind. There has to be a level of challenge for there to be some value in it. And you're exactly right. They're not risking. People would rather say, I'll say, this is a huge generalization, I know. But let's put it this way. A lot of people that I speak to would rather say, this is too tough an environment for me to operate in. Because they are not, what they're really saying is, I am not, my ego is too fragile to bear failure and rejection. I think that's the second thing that we do in Sandler. So one of the things, not the second in any order, but as a second thing we do in Sandler, the first one I mentioned is we light a fire under ambition and drive that fuels a furious work ethic. The second thing is we manage egos or we help people to manage their own egos and, and in doing that, unleash the power of failure. So much power in failure that our egos are steal from us. So we have to be a, a you know we have to be willing to risk, wanting to risk, wanting to fail. One of my one of the Sophia who works for me and she won't mind me telling you this. She said, you know, I'm disappointed with my results right now. She said to me, I said, Sophia, the day you tell me you're not disappointed with the results is a day we're going to have a very serious conversation. We should be consistently disappointed with our results, you know, because disappointment is the reality versus expectation. And if we're not expecting huge things from ourselves, if we're not expecting that furious work ethic, then we're not going to magnetize it to ourselves. We're going to create a very comfortable comfort zone that we, li- that we, that we live in. And by the way, Marcus, one thing that the COVID virus event has taught me 
or has proven to me is that I was in a very comfortable comfort zone. <laughs> very comfortable. You know, we were doing very well. And this has pushed me way outside my comfort zone. I've had more time to read. I've had more time to interact and bring value to clients. I'm prospecting in a much, I'm prospecting differently. I am looking for different sorts of fit. But there's still, you know, my pipeline, half of it just evaporated on me when this started, but the other half sped up and they accelerated. The other half had an acceleration to it. This is the time we go, go, go. And I am also, I have an extraordinarily high expectation of every day and every day leaves me a little disappointed. It's supposed to. It's supposed to. What's important is I'm not attached to that disappointment feeling. I'm attached to my behaviors and my expectations, not my disappointment. I think there are a couple of lessons here. The universe does not give a fuck. The universe owes you nothing. It was here first. And it's up to you to get out there and seize the opportunity. I see this as a massive gift. I don't think I've ever trained or coached so well because the adversity, the challenge, the urgency has forced me to be more creative than ever. And I haven't enjoyed my work as much in 16 years of doing this. I've been through two, uh, two downturns in Sandler, five in my career, and this is the best one yet. It's absolutely a gift because it's forcing me to be far more creative and it's forcing my clients to ask better questions of themselves and to bring better challenges. The whole concept of your pipeline, um, you know, 50% of it disappearing, it did you the favor because you were probably hanging on through attachment to a load of stuff that you were never going to win. And so one of the things that I'm doing with my clients is making sure that they're ruthlessly going through their pipeline and identifying what's real and what isn't so that they can focus their effort and attention on what is and moving that stuff through faster and more effectively. And it's even creating upsells. I mean, some of my clients are having their best month ever. And it's not largely because the market has changed significantly. Their behavior has changed and their focus and the quality of their conversations has dramatically improved because they're asking the questions that they needed to ask instead of pussyfooting around and operating at the comfortable surface level because it's urgent, it's important for both the customer and them that they get this deal through because if they don't, then the customer will suffer. They know that the payoff for them is that they get bigger results, but actually they're less attached to the outcome than they ever have been because they're so focused on the customer. I interviewed Todd Camp. Do you know Jim Camp, who wrote Start With No? Yes. Brilliant book. And again, he was a Sandler client. And Todd said something really interesting, which is, what's your mission and purpose when you're meeting a prospect or a customer? Now, when you ask that question of people, they invariably come back with something self-orientated. I want to close the sale. I want to make this amount of money. I want to hit my quota. I want to talk to them about this, that, and the other. And that's 180 degrees from where your mission and purpose has to be. Whether you're selling or whether you're in a negotiation, your mission is what does the customer want and need help with? 
Your purpose is how do they want us to help them fix it? Now, that orientation has been uh, catalyzed by this crisis for many of them because they realize that no one wants to talk about your ugly children. They don't want to talk about your products or your services or your company or who your investors are or how clever you are. They want to know, can you help me solve my problem? If you can't, why are we talking? If you can, you are high on my priority list. And the net result of that is the quality of their conversations, the quality of their questioning has improved massively because war is the mother of invention. I I think crisis brings out your true characteristic and your true characteristics. And under pressure, many people will revert back to what they learned first. But if you've got the basics, which you've drilled and practiced until they become part of your behavioral, uh, behavioral DNA and they become habituated and they're part of your culture, then you revert back to the good behaviors. And I think that's what this crisis has really done for me and a lot of my clients. It's drawn us back to the fundamentals of what works. Because in the good times, it was easy to be complacent. All you had to do was basically throw a grenade in the barrel and the fish would come to the top. That wasn't ever difficult. Making money actually is not difficult. It requires the simple application of the basics consistently over time. And this then comes back to habit. And that habit creates that mindset. And again, one of the things that I particularly love about my experience in Sandler has been the realization that we as sellers have rights. As managers, we have rights. As channel managers, we have rights. And if we don't know that we have them, then it's very easy to let someone else ride roughshod over them. So let me wrap up with this question for this section. In terms of self-concept, I'm really interested to discover your thoughts around how managers can help develop a salesperson's self-concept during this crisis period a wise Sandler trainer called Marcus once told, once taught me that a manager has four basic hats. They have a supervisor's hat, they have a coach's hat, a trainer's hat, a coach's hat, and a mentor's hat. And alongside those, those major roles that they fill, they have four major responsibilities. And I know I can picture the bar we were both stood at when you explained it to me, which is uh, to um, hire, attract, onboard, recruit, and onboard top talent into their team. Step one. Responsibility number two is to then completely understand those individuals as individuals such that I understand your motivational hooks and I can frame what I ask you to do based on your motivation, not my motivation or the company's motivation. Then step three, responsibility three, is to to express with absolute clarity what I expect of people framed in your motivational hooks, in 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 the individual's motivational hooks. So not in my language, but in your language. And then number four, identify and capitalize on 
coaching opportunities as they present themselves. And so I'm sure you remember having that conversation with me, Marcus. And so how do we address self-concept? Well, we've got to look in those responsibilities and say, where does self-concept live? Which of those responsibilities are specifically pointed at self-concept? Well, of course, it's the coach's role. It's the coach's role and the coach's responsibility, the responsibility to coach, that, that are both sort of hone in on this, on working on self-concept. I heard somebody yesterday say, we have this inner critic and we have an inner advocate, an inner coach. Right. So we have an inner critic and an inner coach. And a manager is the external critic and the external coach, right? It's the Jiminy Cricket. It's the external critic. And we could also, if we're going to use a sporting analogy, it's a commentator. So the manager often finds themselves commentating on performance. That's historically focused. You know, a commentator is constantly talking about what has happened, the last three minutes, the last play, the statistics. They're all backward-facing. The coach is future-facing. The, the coach is oriented to what's going to happen next, is establishing strategy. He's taking one of our Sandler colleagues is, um, is Chris. Chris says, you know, what? one of the things a leader does is he takes perception, understand what's happening, and turn it into perspective. What's it going to happen in... How do I use the data set from now into value into the future? That's what the coach is doing. So the coach has got to take what's happening now, Mr. Salesperson or Mr. Team Member. Here's the data set we're in. Let's apply some perspective to it. And that is after, you know, that is working on somebody's id, somebody's ego, somebody's self-concept. Because there's no other way that we can really take today's data and turn it into tomorrow's success, but other than going through the self-concept, right? That's the, that's the route we travel as we develop people. And we know that as coaches. So this then brings me to this other bugbear of mine. And you see it all the time in recruitment adverts for managers, which is must be able to motivate the team. As an act of idiocy and ignorance, that has to be one of the worst things that you can possibly put in a recruitment advert, because motivation... Let, let's, let's characterize it as naivety rather than idiocy. <laughs> let's be gentle. It, it, it's, na <laughs> it's naivety and idiocy. Okay. Um, you cannot motivate anyone. Motivation is an internal fire. And this drives me to distraction because where managers try to motivate, what they have a tendency to do is impose their view of the world Instead of listening and asking, they tell. And they spend so much of their energy wastefully trying to drive behavior where they could actually. There's a, a wonderful proverb. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You can if you put salt in the oats. Our job is to find what makes the salesperson thirsty so that they get up in the morning with a spring in their step and they do what is needed. But too often it fails and it fails in the recruitment process because managers should be establishing at that point what the individual's personal motivation and drivers are, why they are in sales, why they want this job, for whom they are doing it. So I'm coming off my soapbox. 
Thank you for this. This has been really insightful. Tell me, what are you being influenced by at the moment? What are you reading, watching, listening to? Oh, fantastic. So um, I am actually, tries the wrong word, I'm actually achieving, I'm doing it. I'm spending about, I'm working about 13 and 14 hours a day at the moment, but I'm spending a third of that time on personal development. I'm taking this, the fact, I mean, I've always been those kind of hours. I've always been that kind of guy. I think that comes from my father, but it was, but I have managed to take that time that was used to be spent in a car and traveling and, you know, taking that time and I am reading a lot. So in the past month, since we've been locked down, I have read Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Brilliant. Simon Sinek, The Infinite Game. The Untethered Soul. I've reread This Is Marketing, Seth Godin. And I have read... Uh, read for the first time, even though it's been on my kind of like people have talked about it a lot. I've read um, The Richest Man in Babylon, which is cool. And I'm about to uh, I'm about to read. I'm nearly finished The Untethered Soul. I am about to read a biography of Ben Franklin by Walter Isaacson. Benjamin Franklin by Walter Isaacson. Don't know if you've read it. You read it? Not yet. Isaacson's a very good biographer. Yeah, a fabulous biographer. So I have uh, read that. Uh, sorry, I'm about to read that. And I had a couple uh, suggested to me for my next ones. I'm going to read the. Um, I'd have to. I'd have to dig them up. Um, one of the best books I've read recently, shameless plug, is Antonio Garrido's The 21st Century Ride Along, which um, I, I don't know if you've if you've actually managed to to get through yet, Marcus. I think it's extraordinary handbook for sales management as good i'm gonna i'm gonna go on a limb as good as uh, the uh, the your channel sales book <laughs> marcus so and, and then what am i I'll watching oh and the compound effect i'm about to read also the entrepreneurial roller coaster both the compound effect and the entrepreneurial roller coaster darren let, hardy books let, let i like darren one hardy one yeah let me give you one other keith cunningham the road less stupid it's oh, right up your street. Is it right up my street? It's One minute. Right Let me write that road. down. The road, um, less, less stupid. stupid. Let me tell you somebody that I'm watching. I'm watching because I'm also watching stupid. I watched the Gary Kasparov Masterclass on chess, which had more business lessons than anything you could ever watch. He said, strategy is what you do when there's nothing to do. Tactics is what you do when there's something to do. Ain't that a business <laughs> analogy? So I watched that. I, I am watching a lot of Sadhguru at the moment. Do you ever watch Sadhguru? Fantastic Indian philosopher. And I am watching a lot of Darren Hardy. I like Darren Hardy. And I'm watching, I've been introduced by a colleague of ours. Chad Stenzel introduced me to Andy Andrews. If you haven't watched Andy Andrews, The Butterfly Effect, it's a seven-minute uh, YouTube okay. spectacular. So there are lots, lots and lots. I'll give you one more that's really worth a listen. David McWilliams, his podcast, he's an economist and his dissection of the current situation is utterly brilliant. Definitely worth getting on the podcast. So final question then, if you had a golden ticket and you could go back to your 23-year-old idiot self, what advice would you give him? So um, this is going to sound terrible. This is going to sound so self-serving. Uh, find your nearest Sandler trainer. It's ridiculous. And, and I'm not that guy. 
I am not that cult-like, you know. I, I, it's been ridiculous, the impact that's, that it's had on me personally and professionally to really understand myself. Number two, the second thing I would do is, is I would say think less, Mr. Carlos. Think less about how much you're earning and think more about how much you're learning because I found that, that knowledge has become the compounding, has had a compounding effect on my income. Absolutely. So that's what I would say to the 23-year-old Carlos. Excellent. I'd, I'd second that advice. So how can people get hold of you? There aren't many Carlos Garridos, so not, well, I suppose there are in Miami, actually, and across Latin America and Spain. So, yeah, let me qualify that. Carlos.Garrido, G-A-R-R-I-D-O, at Sandler.com is an email. LinkedIn, we've got a great link. I mean, when you look at all the magic things we put on LinkedIn, please don't think I do any of it. I've got a couple of people that work with me who are geniuses at this stuff, but we put great content out on LinkedIn. We put great content out on Facebook. So look for Sandler Training Miami. Look for um, our actual company's called Absolute Sales Development. So if you look for Absolute Sales Development too, and we tweet and we put on LinkedIn and well, just email me and, and I'd love to, love to meet as many people as possible. Bring me a referral for crying out loud and I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Carlos, thank you. Thank you. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please like, comment, and share, and please subscribe. And if you know somebody who would be a great guest for the podcast, then please get in touch at mcauchi at sandler.com with their details and maybe connect the two of us on LinkedIn. And perhaps that's you. So happy selling. Stay safe. Bye-bye.